0: Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollens. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context. Today's guest is...
1: So I'm Marlene Sharp. I'm coming at you from Los Angeles, California, and I am... I suppose, a multi-hyphenate in the entertainment industry. So that would be producer, writer, creative, executive, actor is how I started out, but didn't end up that way. But, uh, but I'm, I'm still accepting offers if you want to hire me as an actor. So that's me.
0: I, I'm, I'm in a similar boat. I'm, I'm multi-hyphenated when I work on my, my short films and stuff. I prefer to do the stuff behind the camera. Uh, the guy that I've been producing stuff with for the past few years insists that i'm I'm good in front of the camera. I'm just I don't necessarily have my confidence there yet. so
1: oh, we have a great voice.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much. so
1: <laughs> and you look you look fabulous on camera to me. I, I, I'm not sure if this is just just for me or if others will see it, but you're camera I, ready for sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. I just stick with the audio. Mainly because I just don't like. I don't have the confidence that I probably should. Let's jump in with you. You're originally from New Orleans.
1: That's right. What uh,
0: What was it like growing up down there?
1: Well, I'll be honest with you. I didn't really like it. Um, I am probably the worst ambassador of New Orleans and the Deep South that there is. So, uh, so I won't sugarcoat it. (laughs) I didn't fit in there. Um, But a lot of people love it, including most of my family and 99% of the people that I grew up with. So, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll say as a disclaimer, it's quite a different thing to live there versus to visit there, like for Mardi Gras or any of the other festivals and celebrations. But it is quite a bit of a drinking culture and a football culture, two things that I not participate in (laughs) so that makes me an outsider by default
0: (laughs) so I'm was. i here in
1: Los Angeles instead
0: (laughs) I was gonna ask (laughs) is it as crazy regularly as people perceive it to be when they go to visit or is that just kind of around the festivals where it gets really ramps up
1: it's crazy but it's it's crazy in a way that's not relatable to most people who don't live there um there are parades for everything so it's not just limited to mardi gras like for instance there was just saint patrick's day and saint joseph's day and there were parades for that and that was just a couple weeks after mardi gras so um but it was big big celebrations streets blocked off the whole nine yards things being thrown off of floats um that that whole scene but it, it was not mardi gras it was St. Patrick's Day and St. Joseph's Day.
0: I can imagine so, um, all the parades getting old real quick.
1: Yeah, well, um, I I haven't been to Mardi Gras in a long, long time, and I used to enjoy it as a kid. Um, and and I I think it, it's it's a, a great thing for someone to experience, especially for the cultural reasons there's nothing else really like it anywhere else but um but if you want to do anything else besides go to the parades you're in a fix because <laughs> you, it's hard it's very hard to drive anywhere right? my, my dog agrees by the way she's um she's actually visited new orleans several times Not but no parades
0: <laughs> is that she's is that a Blanche?
1: california girl <laughs> yes yeah, that was Blanche. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, tell us a little bit about her. Is she the the reason why you called the production company Pink Poodle? Or is
1: yes, there another story? Yes, that? very much so. Well, she's um she's a poodle Bichon mix but we love poodles and bichons equally they're they're so very similar she's she's mistaken also for maltese which is another fine fine breed of dog (laughs) (laughs) the little we like all the little white fluffy fluffy dogs pomeranians are great too um, but she, she identifies as both a poodle and a Bichon. So, um, but you know, poodles have a higher profile, I think a higher Q score. Yeah. So <laughs> if, if we would have called it pink Bichon productions that, and it doesn't quite have that alliteration, yeah. but she did do, we did a short film a few years ago called Blanche's Bichon bust. And that's where we really capitalized on her Bichon identity.
0: <laughs> Got it. I'm a, uh, i am I have two dogs I I love my or younger one of the two not that I don't love the other one but the big one is he's like an 80 pound lap dog he's got no concept that he is I love that as big as he (laughs) is he just sits on you and then looks at you with this dopey look and drools on you and it's it's great
1: (laughs) what kind of dog
0: uh he is a a true mutt he's got like six or seven different breeds I think he's mostly German Shepherd but he's okay. got like chow chow in him. He's got some bulldog in him, or or boxer rather, white alpine uh, white Swiss shepherd. Wow. Yeah, he's I've a, never heard of that. But he sounds he's got very quite the blend <laughs> And he's just he's just an adorable, adorable dope.
1: I love that. I love I love huge lap the lap dogs. They're very fun.
0: So how did you get into the entertainment industry? What was the first thing you did?
1: Well, I was just born that way. Um, I loved being the center of attention and my, I think another thing that happened was when I was really little, like a toddler, my mom started taking me to community theater and it just looked like a whole lot of fun. And also I really loved to watch TV from a very early age and at some point I'm, I must've asked my mom a lot of questions. And at some point I made that connection that going to the children's theater productions and watching Sesame street and TV commercials and those things were all kind of part of the same universe. And then, um, really early on i i asked my mom how how we could get to sesame street so i thought it was within driving distance and we could just go and visit big bird and whatnot and then she explained to me that the filming happened in new york and this and that and then i was like oh man well not here is the place where i want to <laughs> be um i i didn't really know the difference between new york and los angeles at that point but uh but yeah I always liked singing and dancing and watching movies and so forth and so I always tried to find show business as much as I could within New Orleans and hit or miss uh but uh yeah I just always really loved it and I don't come from a show business family I do have a cousin who is quite successful in the music business but our paths never really crossed professionally, so yeah, it's just just me, the black sheep of the Sharp family.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what was your your first? Um, did you act first, or were you kind of writing first? What, what was your first uh, foray into the entertainment business?
1: Uh, that's a good question. Well, as a theater goer, um, that that was the, the first thing, and then acting as much as I could and the school of talent shows at, at my my grammar school. So I participated in that. And then uh, a, real, a real watershed moment for me was when I was in first grade, there was a Christmas play and the teacher asked for volunteers to be the star of the play. The star of the play was an, an angel. And I, I, I just like it, it, my immediate thought was like, Oh, everybody's going to want to do this. This is, this is going to be a free for all, but then nobody raised their hand. And I was so delighted. So I just raised my hand. And there I was the star of the show just cause I volunteered. <laughs> and, uh, that, that was, um, that was a, a wonderful experience and, um, then, yeah, I just kept volunteering for stuff, places that would have me, bas- basically within my school, and, and then at my, my high school, and then in college and community theater. And then after I graduated from college, I went to, uh, for undergrad, I went to Loyola University in New Orleans, and then after I graduated, I went to San Diego State for the Master of Fine Arts MFA Musical Theater program.
0: So, you started, so That's when I moved. You started in theater yeah. productions, not necessarily the uh, motion picture production, so to speak.
1: That's right. If I could, well, if I could have started at the top with movies and so forth, I would have done it. But um, I, I wasn't able to. <laughs> <laughs> I had to start at the bottom. <laughs> so
0: that's, you got to start somewhere. Whether you're you're lucky enough to start higher to the, closer to the top, or, or you got to start at the bottom. Um, my first foray really came doing background acting. Um, oh, uh, I'm, I'm a set dresser. Cause that's, that's uh-huh. all I am. I'm set dressing. Um, you blink, you miss me kind of thing. And a friend of mine who he'd gone to school for filmmaking and things like that. He's like, Oh, you do that at that. That's, you know, I have some projects. Why don't we work on a couple things? And uh-huh. for the last, uh, six, seven years or so, we've been uh-huh. just doing little independent things. We've got some, we get some pretty good acclaim at some of the festivals we go to. Uh-huh. Um, we're currently working on a on a feature and a few other other things that we've got. So I, I That's so nice. I like I said, I enjoy the stuff behind. It. I enjoy consulting with the writing, working on the, the script. I enjoy the production aspect of it. Um, it I, I enjoy the, the collaborative experience when you have the right people in the right in the room together.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. And I, I imagine there's a lot going you're in New Jersey, right? So Correct. there's a lot going on there. That's New York adjacent, so yeah. you guys have a, a thriving industry. I mean, that's, that's the birthplace of film and TV, really. Um, if you listen to the stories of old Hollywood, it's really the stories of old New York. And then for a variety of reasons, I guess weather being one of them. It's
0: uh, easier to film move- good things in, in, in sunnier weather.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, yes.
0: When did you transition from the theater to the more filmed stuff? Was that a voice well, acting guess, thing or was that that actual?
1: I, I always had an interest in working in the entertainment industry and my parents really drilled into my head that I needed some kind of a backup plan. So my backup plan was like the, the, the A choice of career was acting. The B choice was working in some other aspect of the entertainment industry, which I did not realize how difficult that would be. Um, The B choice and the A choice are kind of neck and neck for the level of difficulty (laughs) to break in and continue to stay in. But, um, But I never really wanted to be an actor who waited tables or did some kind of Completely non-related entertainment job. I'm. I figured I'm. I'm not coordinated enough to be a waiter. I'm not talented enough to to wait tables. <laughs> I would hurt myself and others for sure. So that was not a safe choice for me. And uh, so I thought some kind of desk job in the entertainment industry. And I thought that that would work out. And and also I I I enjoyed writing. I mean it's it. I enjoyed. Um, c- conceptualizing things that I could potentially be in. Got it. So it was all van. It, it's all vanity. That's that's w- that's where my writing <laughs> career comes from. Is this the extension of my vanity, I suppose? But um, but then when um when I moved to Los Angeles, um early early on, I started temping, and then I um I landed at a production consulting entity that was involved with Power Rangers. And um, that's where I really learned about development, creative development, which is a big part of, of what I do. And And I worked at that. I, it went from being a temp job to something that I kept for five years. So I, I was there for five years learning about development and kids and family entertainment, also adaptations of um, foreign content, into uh, something more westernized. So um, so I, I it was on-the-job training and then um, making connections in that world and then continuing to get hired. So it wasn't really a well-orchestrated plan, but I, I tried to be flexible with the opportunities that came my way.
0: Got it. So when you say uh, taking foreign content and kind of westernizing it, is that kind of regarding the uh, animation, the the Japanese animation stuff and getting the voiceovers and the talent to rework in the script so the the translations work?
1: Yes, yes. So that's – I didn't know that that was a business at all until I – um, got this temp job working for Renaissance Atlantic films. And the gentleman who owned the company had been very instrumental in bringing Power Rangers to the U S. And so he had been the, um, the president of Bandai America, which is the American office or it was based in, um, Orange County, which it's, it still is, I believe. They, they still have offices in Orange County. Um, so he had been president there. And so he um, he worked with Bandai Japan to acquire the rights to the toys outside of Japan. And then um, he worked with a gentleman named Haim Saban who um, had the rights to the screen content. So the, the movies, the TV series. And so, um, so it was not really a slam dunk as people sometimes think, because it's it's been a huge hit for years. Right. But um, it went there. There were there were about maybe seven to ten years prior to when it became a hit that it, outside of Japan that Haim and Frank were presenting it at all these different. Um, outlets, cable networks, as well as broadcast networks. And they, they really wanted to get it on TV to sell the toys. Um, that's how the, that's the business. (laughs) It's (laughs) that that's the kid's business actually is, um, selling toys and making money off of driving consumer behavior to something else rather than just the content. Right. So, um, yeah, so I learned all about that business. I didn't, I, I, I had watched, um, speed racer as a kid and I really loved that, but I didn't even, I, I didn't know that much about the history of it. And I didn't, I, I guess maybe I had heard People say that it was made in Japan and dubbed into English, but I didn't really have 100% comprehension of what that meant. And and then working for uh, for Frank, which essentially we were working for Bandai. I was his only employee. Um, The first year and a half I worked for him, he had one other employee, and then she left, and then I was his only employee. And my paycheck was paid by Bandai, even though his company was called Renaissance Atlantic Films if it wouldn't be for if it hadn't been for bandai we would not have been in business and so they were paying my paycheck so essentially um i was a bandai employee and then that's when i it was it was this huge um learning experience uh, about you know taking these um cartoons that had been made in japan and uh, a lot of times i would say most times uh when we would we'd get, we'd get a lot of footage from Bandai or from Toei or uh, other, other places too. Toho. um, We'd get lots of stuff that was a hit in Japan or maybe something they were even developing for Japan. And they would send stuff to Frank and say, what, what can you do with this to make it a hit outside of Japan? And so then sometimes we would hire writers and artists and editors to, to help us, a lot of times make up a new story because quite frankly, it would be a lot of stream of consciousness stuff, like just stuff that, and they wouldn't necessarily have, like they would just send us the animation voiced in Japanese, neither Frank nor I spoke Japanese. There would be like no translation. We'd just get like this stuff. And it was all over the place. It was very hard to follow the storylines. There was a lot of unintended humor, at least we thought, um, (laughs) because there would be a lot of stuff included that would not be acceptable for at least American television um, and probably most other places (laughs) in the world. So sometimes we'd have to impose a whole new storyline on it, not to be mean or not to be like, oh, we're Americans, we're superior. It's just in order for us to make a business out of this and try to sell it to more broadcasters and also get um, licensing deals outside of Japan, we'd have to make it more what the buyers in various industries would want. And so sometimes that was really hard and it would, well, it was always, I would say it was always challenging, sometimes harder than others, Uh, um, but, um, and you know, it was a lot of trial and error. It's not like we have the secret sauce of how to, how to make another Power Rangers, because if we knew that we would have been making another Power Rangers all the time. We wouldn't have had so many misses. (laughs) There were a lot of misses, but uh, it was a very, it's a, it's a very interesting business and it's, it's a lot different than the show business that people's in people who work in what I call like the grown-up business are, are accustomed <laughs> <Yeah>. to.
0: <laughs> it it adds a whole other element to the production phase because there's usually pre-production is, yeah, you know, somebody's got an idea and they've gonna start finding the right people to help formulate that idea. But this is a matter of you have to acquire things, you have to see what exactly you get when after you acquire it, make sure you've got your almost reverse marketing to a degree before you release something and then hope that it strikes lightning like you know like the Power Rangers did what, yes what was some of the first animation things that you worked on because um, Power Rangers is yeah. live action
1: right <laughs> live action I know and I, I in my mind I kind of lump it together with all the animations that I've worked on but you're you're right yes it is it is live action um, but I worked on um. Digimon, which we actually did a ton of development on Digimon that never saw the light of day. Like we, we got a lot of stuff from Japan, a lot of, um, assets and they did. And that was one where they translated scripts for us. And, um, the Japanese, translations that we got and sometimes like when we get something when we would see something that was just a raw translation and it hadn't been localized that would be problematic too because it would (laughs) a lot of times be just like a lot of gobbledygook I mean it was like using google translate a lot even though we weren't using google translate back then people you know translators were hired and it was done in the proper way but but still if you have somebody who's native japanese speaker they've never been to the u.s and you know there's various cultural obstacles and then they do a translation they're not going to have all the idioms and things 100 percent understandable so so then we'd get a translation and we'd get some art and maybe some animation maybe some documents about the gameplay because um uh, like the the little tamagotchi uh, toys and things like that we we one great thing we'd always get a ton of toy samples <laughs> so i mean we we were always very popular in the office buildings where we rented space <laughs> because we had toys to give away at all times and um and sometimes they were in the cool japanese packaging and then sometimes we we'd get samples even like when they were mocking up packages for the U S or for UK or wherever we get all kinds of stuff. So, um, so that was cool. But like with, with Digimon, we did a lot of development that never saw the light of day. What ended up happening was, and, and this was probably for the best. I mean, it was the most expedient way to get stuff done. Um, Bandai had a, an, a long standing they, they formulated a long standing deal with um with um saban entertainment which then became part of fox kids and um inst- so our so for a couple of years we were like trying to completely redo these a, a lot of these properties from japan and then at a certain point the decision was made to just dub them. And, and instead of like, and, and so even with dubbing, there's, there's usually some editing involved, but um, we were trying to just crank stuff out to fill the network at, and, and not be so artful and careful about it. So, it. so that's what happened with Digimon. So Digimon at some point, and that was, that was um after pokemon had really taken off and it's like well gee pokemon's doing just fine with with being a ado- we essentially adopted the pokemon model just okay well and not not to diminish what pokemon did because i know a lot of the folks who worked on the early days of pokemon and there is quite a bit of rewriting and cutting and stuff like that but it wasn't like reinventing the wheel as right. we were trying to do but i i worked on digimon i worked on um Saint Saya, I worked on um, one called Cyber Nine, um, something else called um, Dinosaurs, Flint the Time Detective. Um, I don't even remember all the ones. Mongoli Nights, uh, and then and then there was a lot of development that we did that just no one knew about cuz nothing came up. so right. like it seemed like for 5 years straight we were working on something related to Gundam um that never came to fruition we tried to do stuff with Godzilla and Camera that never came to fruition um Dragon Ball we worked on that um we came we we also did some some new development <clears throat> on animated stuff that never <laughs> <on the later laughs> day. Um, oh, and, I, and then I went back into some old catalog stuff that Frank had, um, ca- one called Little Dracula that was so cute. And so he won So the rights. So that that was a show that came out in the early 90s. And it's, it was so well done and so clever based on a um, children's book series from the UK. And then Bandai had done Toys for it and then it only ran for like one or two seasons and then the rights reverted to frank and then he wanted to try to either get it distributed for home media or just like do something else with with the material so i had to one of my assignments was to go back into the footage and like see like you know what was still relevant what what wasn't changed the credits so that Frank was then the executive producer and not the original executive <laughs> producer because then he owned the rights. Right. And that turned out, changing the credits was a huge undertaking <laughs> um, because it wasn't... We we had all of our assets because it was a such an old show. It was on um, three-quarter-inch tape, and some of the tape had disintegrated through the years, and there was, like, tape restoration. I mean, it became like this major archival undertaking and um and then um we ended up getting some deals like on um abc family channel which is now freeform where they they do like the 25 days of halloween or uh, something similar and so we got it on there because it's about a little vampire so it's very halloween oriented but there wasn't big money in that at all in fact, I think we might have given it away. We might have gotten like a dollar <laughs> to have it on ABC Family Channel just to get it out there again. And, right. but yeah, a lot of a lot of stuff that um didn't make the quite the same splash that Power Rangers did, <laughs> which is uh, an understatement, I guess.
0: so being as closely tied to a lot of animation and and comic style stuff, um did you do? the Comic-Con circuits throughout, you know, San Diego and New York, and, and they have almost every big city lately. Uh, what, what was your experience like with the with the Comic-Cons?
1: Oh, great experiences with San Diego Comic-Con. I can't think of any – I haven't been to New York Comic-Con. It's mostly San Diego Comic-Con and Anime Expo um, in, in L.A. And have I been to L.A. Comic-Con? I don't know. I don't think so. I get LA comic-con and anime expo mixed up uh, just because at, at a certain point you, when you've been to a lot of these things and then there's like, besides the fan cons, there are the, the business, b- business to business like MIPCOM, kids screen summit, um, um, Nappy, um and then various other film festivals. I've been really involved with film festivals through the years. So (laughs) at a certain point, they all kind of converge in in my brain. Um, But San Diego Comic-Con, I've had some really wonderful experiences there, especially um, in the last five years working for Sega on Sonic the Hedgehog. We had Sonic's 25th birthday extravaganza in San Diego, and that was quite an experience. And then... The year after that, when <laughs> Sega of America swore up and down that after we we're going to take a break after Sonic's 25th birthday, because that was so labor intensive and emotionally draining for everyone, <laughs> we are not gonna, we're not going to, we're going to take a break from Comic-Con uh, 2017. And we did not. <laughs> we, uh, we had possibly even a bigger presence. The. In 2017, but some of that, a, a big part of that was because um, we exhibited through, there was a new pavilion for, like, virtual reality and um, new technology, I guess, and they were trying to build it up. It wasn't in the convention center. It was off-site in one of the hotels, but they wanted to get some big-name IPs involved there to drive traffic. And so they threw a lot of freebies at us. A friend of mine was in charge of of developing that part of Comic-Con and his name is Mark Murphy, wonderful guy, also an animation producer. But he he got this job um, being the the ambassador for this new aspect of of Comic-Con. And so he just kept giving us free stuff that we couldn't say no to. So we had like, we had a number of different activations. We had a concert. We did a concert um, of sonic music. <laughs> and um, we brought out June Sonoi from Japan, who's done a lot of the stuff on the music on the games for since the beginning. Nice. And, um, yeah, so it was really – and that, that was the – that was the year I was on a, an official Comic Con panel, so that will that is the year that will go down in my personal history books as reading <laughs> as, as reaching the very heights of nerddom and <laughs> fandom. <laughs> so, what good times!
0: What brought around the the idea for you to kind of I guess strike out on your own and start Pink Poodle Productions?
1: Well, that's because I lost my job in 2019. So the end of 2019, um, I, I had been working for Level 5, which is also a Japanese video game company that has, is very similar to Sega, except it's not as old and um, not quite the same awareness worldwide, but they do have a lot of, hits that have been made into successful TV series and toys and whatnot and so I from Sega I went to work at level five as the head of their TV and film production outside of Japan and so they had an LA office and they also had an office in Hong Kong and one in Seoul Korea and then the end of 2019 level five headquarters in Japan decided they did not want to have offices outside of Japan anymore. They wanted to pull it all back into the mothership. So sadly that was the end of my job and the end of everybody's job who's in LA and also Seoul and Hong Kong. So I did not have another fabulous opportunity waiting for me. I, I did have a few interesting consulting projects that came my way, but not anything that would be like a permanent um, staff position with benefits <laughs> or anything like that. So I had started Pink Poodle Productions a couple of years prior as a website for, as like a an enhanced resume. So a, a, a resume, a place to, to have a portfolio and just show samples of my work, and um, and then I would always do consulting projects on the side, just side hustles in secret. Um, and so I wanted to have that as a um, like a venue to show show my wares. So then I just decided, since I didn't have anything else waiting for me, that Pink Poodle Productions was going to that's going to be my job until further notice. And so, then changed my LinkedIn to you know <laughs> that that that's that's where I work. And then I've just been doing that for the last two and a half years. Um, and I do, um, I do actually work full time for Rainshine Entertainment. So I don't want to diminish that opportunity. I am the head of IP strategy and. Um, Acquisitions for Rainshine Entertainment, but um, they originally hired me as a consultant. So I was a consultant for a year and a half before they made me full time last year. And so I just never <laughs> changed all of my, <laughs> uh, well, my LinkedIn basically, right? Um, because I'm all I'm, <laughs> I'm always very cautious about where. Uh, at at this point, you know, um, I I, I want to stay with companies long term, but the reality is in in entertainment, um, long term is sometimes one year or less, and you know there's various mergers and acquisitions and things like that, and so um, so I'm always cautiously optimistic that things are going to work out, but uh, but I just this time. You know, I, I do promote rain shine stuff like crazy on LinkedIn, but I haven't, I still haven't changed, uh, my full-time employer, but, um, but Pink Poodle is something that I know will always be there. It'll always be there for me. And, um, and so I thought, why not promote my own stuff, uh, uh and, and have build up equity in my own brand.
0: Right. What kind of uh, content does Rainshine put out? Is it kids content or is it other stuff?
1: Yeah, all kinds of stuff. So Rainshine is um, based in Mumbai in India. Um, and it's a conglomerate. There are probably about 12 companies under the Rainshine banner. And they all specialize in different things. So so Rainshine started about five years ago with a really uh, – a very smart and successful businessman named Naraj Bargava, who is of Indian descent, but he made a big name for himself on Wall Street. He's very—he um, comes from the world of finance. He's very skilled at um, bringing companies into uh, IPO. And I'm—I will tell you now. I will use the wrong terminology and grammar because this is not my world. <laughs> not a but problem. But anyway. He was a big deal on Wall Street and um, and a lot of tech stuff um, he was involved with. And so then um, at a certain point, he decided to move back to India and um, he started this media company with various investors. But their idea, which is such a brilliant idea, actually, they... To, to establish a footprint in the business, they acquired a lot of small companies that had already been doing business and that were on the, on the cusp of breaking out into the big time. Um, so they, they they were able to establish a reputation rather quickly and then build on that. Right. And, um, and then um, they started an animation division shortly before they brought me on board so that was actually I started consulting for them in December of 2019 so not not long after I um left level five and then so they originally brought me on to acquire intellectual properties that they could turn into animated series and films that was supposed to be like my main focus and then I was also uh an advisor to the other live action divisions of the company that wanted to acquire various kinds of IPs to either make them into Indian localized versions or, um, or potentially release them on a global scale, but, um, but maybe not animation, maybe live action or game shows or reality shows or whatever. And, but because of the nature of, animation and kids entertainment and the need to package it with a toy company and consumer products and things like that. It's very labor intensive. So, so the understanding was that was going to be the main focus of my job. And then um, they had so many cool projects and things going on that I just couldn't help myself, but in inserting myself, (laughs) in all of these different areas. I mean, and you know, it wasn't like I just showed up, But, um, but I really, I, so one of my favorite divisions of the company is called weird ass comedy and it is the production company of Veer Das, who is a very successful comedian from India, but he's also known outside of India. In fact, he's, um, starring in the Judd Apatow movie, the bubble, which just dropped on Netflix. And Veer has a number of Netflix comedy specials and um, he has a, a, a series, um, a scripted dramedy series called Hazmook that is, um, the, the the language is is Hindi, but you can watch it with subtitles and it's really great. It's like a, it's like a combination of Dexter or Barry it's about a serial killer who's a stand-up comedian and in order (laughs) to be funny he has to continue to kill people or else he loses his mojo he's just he so um it's a very dark comedy so I just really I because I, I do have a background in in comedy um not just comedy acting but I did stand up for a number of years and um and i just come from a funny family so another thing i you know i was born that way i'd rather come from like the most beautiful family or like the richest family but i i didn't and i, I come from a funny family so it still so works. Uh, that that's one thing that we have going for us we're hilarious sometimes not intentionally but you know we make it work a and, lot of comedy um, seems to
0: be unintentional <laughs> At least involving That's me. True. <laughs> what
1: uh <Yeah.
0: laughs> what advice do you have for aspiring entertainment moguls like yourself?
1: Well, it helps to be open to all kinds of opportunities and keeping an open mind just in general. Because I remember uh what one of my early jobs in the business, I worked as a talent agent assistant and um We, we were not an A-list agency by any stretch. I mean, we were, we were not a go-to agency for celebrities, for sure. We were like the people who would, we represented people who would show up and audition for like five lines and under kind of roles and um, uh, maybe spokespeople on like industrial films uh, to, to, we were very close to Taco Bell headquarters. So we supplied a lot, myself included. I was in a number of Taco Bell instructional videos (laughs) as well. But um, the thing was, is that, you know, we had a lot of actors who were trying to establish names for themselves, but nobody, I don't want to say nobody, but a lot of people were not realistic about their type and (laughs) myself included. Okay. Like I wanted, I wanted to be the glamour girl, But I was not. And very quickly, um, you know, I got that wake up call (laughs) working at the age. I mean, any any hope that I that hadn't been dashed when I was in grad school was pretty much put to bed once I worked at the talent agency. And I could I could see my thinking in other people in that, like. People who were, let's say, overweight, did not want to play overweight roles, So they would, they would specifically tell me, and they, they'd be kind of snippy about it too. They'd like, they'd be like, don't send me out for fat roles. I don't want to play fat roles. And it's like, well, okay. But like, I know it's offensive, but then you're missing your opportunity. And like people who were of various ethnicities didn't want to play their ethnicity. They like, we had this really handsome Egyptian man on our roster and he's like, don't send me out for Egyptian roles. And it's like, well, you're the only person we have who can speak the language who's authentically Egypt- like, like that's your calling card. That's, right. that's your bread and butter. But then he didn't, he's like, no, I only want to be sent out for, you know, America or, um, Non non specified ethnicities and only like doctors and lawyers. I don't want to play a terrorist or a uh, whatever. And like I can understand that thinking, but then then folks would also get mad that they weren't having enough auditions. And it's right. like, okay, you put a lot of restrictions on yourself. Um, it's kind of tying your shoelaces together before the you, reason. Before a race. Yeah. So I mean, I um, I. I pra- tried to practice what I preached and I was, now, if you told me that this was going to be my lot in life as a girl, I probably wouldn't have jumped for joy, but it got to a point where I, I was excited to play the homely fat girl. Um, and like in New Orleans, when I'd go home, I'd be so, Oh, you're so skinny. Cause you know, you, Oh, you went to California, you got so skinny, but I am not, Los Angeles skinny, I'm the, I am the fat girl, um, (laughs) so, so if that's where, where I keep getting cast, if that, okay, like, I had to become okay with it myself, and then, and then, you know, you, you, if you, if you're an actor, and you, you don't like what you are, and you want to play something different, that's kind of like a conversation you need to have with yourself, like, maybe, maybe I'd be, better off like psychologically doing something else or like doing a one person show and or doing stand-up where you totally create your material, you create your persona. Um, but if you're trying to fit into other people's boxes, this is a business of stereotypes. Right. Um, the, it's very hard to get around that. So, um, so that's why I say keep an open mind. Um, and I, I can also say that it was not my dream. Like when I felt when I felt like I was um, evolving, I guess, as a business person. And okay, I'm going to work behind the scenes and you know I'm going to I'm going to be an agent assistant or I'm going to work as a producer, writer, whatever. Um, when I when I decided, okay, I'm really going to focus on that. My dream was not to work on Japanese cartoons and adapt them for Western audiences. Uh, my dream was not to, you know, dub, dub foreign material. It was not to work on boys' action property. It wasn't any of that. Um, but that that's where the opportunities were. And if I wanted to work, uh, it was in my best interest to at least pay attention to the opportunities that presented themselves and um and now i mean i can acknowledge that those weren't my dreams but i i am so tickled to go and like talk on people's podcasts like like this or talk at comic-con or or like embrace what my career has been um because there is value in it it's just it's not what i dreamed of but um but that it doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile or um or you know
0: fulfilling sometimes (laughs) yeah
1: yeah and it's it's and it's funny it's been funny for me to learn that it's other people's dream like when i was working on power rangers i was embarrassed i didn't want to tell anybody i was like this is the worst tv show in the world this is probably the worst content that has ever been like (laughs) the early seasons of power rangers to me it was like because i i studied broadcast production as an undergrad and it's like the lip sync didn't match and the i mean the the levels on the audio were terrible and like the there were so many continuity i mean it was just one half hour of continuity er errors (laughs) and and over the top acting and 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 big rubber suits that didn't that were like non-sequiturs and stuff and i was just like I cannot tell anybody that I worked on. Like, this is embarrassing. This is a travesty. Like, th- this will have to be my secret. <laughs> and
0: Meanwhile, then, it's one of the here. biggest things. It's really been on TV for kids in, in decades.
1: I know. I know. So who am I to have an attitude about that? I mean, like, I am fortunate to, to have worked on such a high-profile project. But at the time, I was kind of a know-it-all kid, I suppose. And, you know, I had high standards for myself and wanted to work on artful, lofty, Oscar-worthy types of things. And and I distinctly remember early on that my my boss, Frank, he would get so angry with the writers because they were trying to be too artful with the, the scripts that they turned in. And so many times he was send notes like we are not trying to win Emmys. We are selling toys. And yeah. he'd be like, when I print out the script, I don't want to see a script that's this thick. I want one that's this thick and it's all action, yeah. no dialogue, no talking. <laughs> it was like, it's like this it's too good for what we're doing here. We're not making good television. <laughs> we're selling toys. That's it. <laughs> so that was like, wow, like I couldn't even believe that somebody was giving that note. Yeah. Um, or those notes. And then, and then it's like, well, that, that just gives you another perspective. So keeping an open mind to really anything that's out there. I mean, it's good to have standards, of course. Right. I did temp at Hustler Magazine uh, for a few days. And that was another thing where I was like, I really can't tell anybody that I'm tempting. I mean, like, this is really embarrassing. Um, (laughs) I definitely can't tell any of my Catholic school teachers that this is where I landed. And um, they did want me to stay on longer. And I was like, well, no, thank you. (laughs) Not really your,
0: your, your, your intentions there, so. Yeah, I think I like the idea of, of people being open-minded to things because you, you, you never know when your break's going to come. You can go for something you really aren't into, but as long as you're given and you're awesome, you might see something go, this might work better somewhere else, and, and you might get your your big shot then.
1: Yeah, and if your feelings get hurt, I mean, that is, that is something that you have that the individual probably should deal with. It's soul searching or therapy or whatever, but, or just skin is required
0: too for, for the industry.
1: Yes, exactly. And, um, and even, even if you're working behind the scenes, people want to pigeonhole you all the time, all day, every day, people will come, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll want to put you in your stay in your lane or stay in your box or whatever. And, um, and so it's not like if you you could try to avoid it and like go in a slightly different direction. But I don't know if you can ever really get away from that entirely. It seems to be a part of human nature to want yeah. to categorize things and, you know, label labels things and,
0: and putting things in boxes just to make it easier yeah. to organize the chaos. Yeah. Yeah. Where can where can people find you and, and maybe reach out to you or, or find the stuff that you've worked on?
1: I am a maniac on LinkedIn, so if you want to link with me, please, please do, because I am, I am always there, and I am LinkedIn's biggest cheerleader because I have gotten so many opportunities from just being present, and uh, so LinkedIn, I'm just Marlene Sharp on LinkedIn, and then my company website is pinkpoodleproductions.com and you can send me messages through my website and um, I'm on Facebook as Marlene Sharp and uh, also Instagram and Twitter. So I'm, I'm pretty reachable and findable.
0: <laughs> I will uh, definitely put all those links out there and make Thank sure you. people have a way to get in touch with you. So now for the, the last part where I ask a handful of really random questions, uh, what would you rather type things? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> first question would you rather be a genius and know everything, or be amazing at any activity that you tried?
1: I think be amazing at any activity I tried. As oh wait, it's a genius where you would automatically know know every-
0: everything? Yeah,
1: know everything. Yeah, I'd rather uh, the the second one.
0: Me too. I mainly because I just I like learning. I'm I'm a student of life, so to speak.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Would you rather go into the past and meet your ancestors or go into the future and meet your great-great-grandchildren?
1: Well, there aren't going to be any great-great-grandchildren because I don't have any kids. (laughs) Um, Although there might be, well, no, because Blanche hasn't had any puppies so I think it might be best for me to go into the past and visit my ancestors. I mean, certainly my brother has kids and my nieces will probably have children and stuff, but I, I think I can get more bang for my buck if I go into the past and, and learn how I came to be this weird creature that I am.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm a, I'm, I would do the same just cause I'm a, I'm a history, a fan of history. So, and let's yeah. see the, let's see, which last one will I go last? one kind of fits would you rather be trapped inside of a video game or have that video game come to life in the real world
1: I think trapped inside a video game I I like I like small (laughs) worlds and uh I have four doll houses I have a whole big doll collection and um, there are a lot of retro video games that I love playing. And I also love like Wreck-It Ralph and that whole, <laughs> the, I, I would love to be inside Wreck-It Ralph. <laughs> yeah, so yeah.
0: I think I'm uh, the same boat. It's uh, at least if you you die in the video game, you know, you can come back again.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to have that kind of safe, small, protected world as like a little oasis. And then the real world is something separate.
0: Well, I thank you very much for your time and for the the chat. It was definitely very insightful, and I greatly appreciate it.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you very much. Have a good one. Take care. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.